Welcome. This is Anastasia Glova bringing you the Cato Daily Podcast. Be sure to log on to our website, www.cato.org, for a full archive of our podcast as well as many other audio offerings. Cato Senior Fellow Alan Reynolds, in his latest column for the Washington Times, attempts to discredit economic doomsayers' warning of a coming crisis. He attributes this to election year jitters and partisan bickering. In today's podcast, he makes the case for optimism and gives us a roundup of the economic situation in the United States. Are warnings about an impending recession a case of partisan economics? <laughs> Most likely, because they're based on nothing we can see, and they're disproportionate to what we can see. In other words, people are saying, there's trouble out there, and then you ask them, well, what exactly is it? And they get very vague and nebulous. Your arguments are up against those of some very well-established economists. Among them are Nouriel Roubini of New York University, Berkeley's Brad DeLong, and of course there's Paul Krugman. Well, Nouriel brought up the other two in lieu of evidence. In other words, he's saying, I'm predicting a severe recession no later than the first quarter of next year. And when you ask him why, he says, well, my friends uh, Brad DeLong and Paul Krugman think that's true too. This is not logic and it's not evidence. It's name dropping and it gets us nowhere. There's a lot of talk today, a consensus you could even say that the housing market is a bubble about to burst. True or false? Well, I think it's false in the sense that when anything gets too expensive, we want its price to go down. And when they're talking about the bubble bursting, they're talking about towns in which the price may have gone up 20, 25 percent a year for a few years, and now maybe it might go down 5 or 6 percent. Well, that's good if you're a buyer, and maybe it's not so good if you're a seller. But because there are both buyers and sellers involved, to say that's a bad thing is to look at only one side of the transaction. In other words, the buyer's better off and the seller's worse off, but the economy's not worse off. Lower prices are usually better than higher prices. Where exactly is the state of the economy today? Well, no one knows exactly where anything is, but we do have data we look at, and income is still growing well, employment is still growing well. Everything that we would normally look at as a sign of continued prosperity would continue. One of the things Nouriel Rubini brought up, good point, I think, is that almost everybody missed the last recession. Well, I have a lot of fun with that because the Financial Times, January 10, 2001, said I was the first one to use the recession word, and I was two months or three months too early. So so I'm able to say I didn't miss that one. The reason I didn't miss it is industrial production had been falling for six months in a row. This time it's been rising and rising fast, and it's up almost 5% from a year ago. And there's a big difference between something going up and going down. It was going down then, and it's going up now. That's not a recession. How can you say that we're not headed for a recession when oil prices continue to stay high and the Fed is following a tighter policy? Well, that was, the again, the argument Nouriel had in August, except the Fed pretty clearly is not tightening its policies anymore, and oil prices have fallen quite dramatically from about 76 to 60 bucks or so in gasoline, too. And those who used those arguments back then, saying, as Rubini did, oil's going to go above $80, well, when it goes below 60 shouldn't he then change his view? But he hasn't. In fact, he's gotten even more vocal and vociferous about the horrible times ahead. I, too, have said that. That's a possibility if oil goes up and interest rates go up, but oil's not going up and interest rates aren't going up. Would you care to hazard a guess about the coming economic year? I would hazard a guess that it's okay and in some respects better than the one we've been through. Why better? 
oil is likely to stay cheaper. That was a bit of a fluke. And I used to speculate in commodity markets and been kicking myself for not speculating when it hit 75 because I knew that wasn't going to last. And cheaper oil is a very important product. It's not only important to consumers, it's important to business. It's a big part of business costs. And so it should improve profitability and make businesses that use oil and use energy better off than they were this year. Let's try some phrase association. I throw out a term and you tell me what you think. Bush's tax cuts. <laughs> Bush's tax cuts originally was just a sort of a hodgepodge package, most of it postponed. This was the 2001 deal, and he got fairly roundly criticized by myself and others for that. The good part of it was the reduction in marginal tax rates, but it was not ideal either. Simply rolling back the 1993 increases would have been fine by me. But there were all sorts of social policies in it. There was something for marriage penalty. There was a child credit was doubled, that sort of thing. And as packages go, I described it as a lot of bucks for a little bang or vice versa in a Wall Street Journal piece at the time. I still think that's right. I mean, if you were trying to accomplish something, you wouldn't be trying to minimize government revenue. You'd be trying to maximize prosperity and economic incentives to do better. Let's try budget deficit. The interesting thing about the budget deficit is that it's not correlated with anything of any significance. That is to say, people say it causes this, that, or the other thing, but when we go look for that, it doesn't true. Rising interest rates, obviously interest rates have hardly ever been as low as they are now. We have a 10-year bond yield below 5%. Inflation, once again, no inflation. And the same is true not only with the United States. When you look at cross-country comparisons, the country with the biggest deficits for years and years and years has been Japan. has got the lowest interest rates. Government borrowing is government borrowing. It's not a particularly interesting datum to me. It isn't good, bad, or indifferent. It's just one way of financing government. Big government's bad because it's expensive. It's a burden on the private sector, but how we finance it is a secondary issue. And finally, the idea of starving the beast. <laughs> My colleague, Bill Niskanen, says that doesn't work. I never said it did. The thrust of supply-side message in the good old days, Jack Kemp and others, was that if the economy prospers, the government can too, and the government ought not to shoot itself in the foot by doing things that hurt the economy. The starving the beast thing suggests something quite different from that. It was never a metaphor I used, so I don't feel obliged to defend it. If you enjoyed this program, consider subscribing to Cato Audio, a dynamic 60-minute monthly recording that brings you inside the Cato Institute for highlights from exceptional, one-of-a-kind lectures and events on key issues of the day presented by nationally known scholars, authors, and political leaders. Cato Audio is available on our website as well as on iTunes and audible.com.